stories and storytellers are popular the world over. As we have seen, as we have been journeying through the parables together, we love story. We have seen together how we live in the stories that we tell ourselves. And we have seen how we pass stories on from generation to generation to communicate something of our history, something of our worldview, and things that we think are important. In fact, I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago that said that in the past, movements and change that came, protest movements, had their thinkers, but today they have their storytellers. So what we find in Scripture is Jesus, the originator of the protest movement, showing that story is a great way to communicate what it is you're trying to effectively communicate in the world. Because we have seen We have seen as we have journeyed through these parables together that story holds the attention. We have seen together that story enables people to see themselves. And we have seen that while story deals with the known, it always introduces that extra subtle twist that fascinates and makes the hearer reflect. We have seen. We have seen how story is a brilliant instrument in skilled hands, and we have seen Jesus. Jesus, one of the greatest storytellers, using parable to communicate. But this morning, this morning, as we come to the parable that Kim has read for us, we see we see that unlike the parables of the good shepherd or the prodigal son or the lost sheep, the parable of the talents, as we know it, doesn't end well. We heard together how it ends with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is surrounded by other parables that all end equally grimly. Because the parable that comes before concludes with a man being cut to pieces and discarded. And five foolish young women being locked out of doors in the dark of night. And the parable that comes just after this one ends with folks being condemned to the fire created for the devil and his angels. Not easy reading. But as we come to this parable, we see that parables are often aimed at the heart. Very often, very often in the Gospels, Jesus' enemies and disciples alike ask him questions for which they hope to receive an intellectual answer. Who is my neighbor? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Sometimes Jesus gives a straight answer, but more often though, Jesus responds to this sort of question by telling a story, a parable. To the question, who is my neighbor, we find Jesus responding 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. To the question, by what authority are you going to do these things, Jesus answered, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. In other words, then, when someone posed a question to Jesus that was aimed at the head, a question designed to elicit abstract intellectual information, Jesus very often redirects the conversation to aim the issue directly at the heart. He didn't only want people to know the answer to their questions, but he wanted them to feel and live the answer to the question that they were asking. And this means of doing so was through teaching in parables. Because parables force the listener to participate in the story. The content of the parable is as specific to the hearers as it is to his disciples, as it is to us today too. All of the parables in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are all about how to be faithful during the in-between times. They're about how uh, the disciples and how we should act and respond after Jesus has risen from the grave and ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, and how we are to move and operate in the world up until the point when he will return. In verse 14, we read together that the coming of the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey, and how before he goes, he does something remarkable. Look at it if you will. Because what we find in the opening of verse 14 is that before he goes, what he does is he entrusts his wealth to his servants. He leaves in his servants' care all his worldly assets. Everything on the planet that he usually manages himself, he puts into the care of his trusted servants. The fact, the very fact that he does this shows and demonstrates to us that these are not lowly servants. These are not his dishwashers or his groundskeepers, but rather these are servants who knew and know the master's business. They knew how to keep his books. They knew how to manage his estate. They knew how to enter contracts. They knew how to collect the debts, and they knew how to invest his money. And he leaves everything in their capable hands. Jesus implies that the master in this story then considers some of the servants more capable to others. Because look at what he does. We read together that to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another one, each according 
to his ability. An extremely practical thing for the master to do because he knew that if he wasn't going to be around, that these people would have to pursue his interests for him. He needs someone to do with his assets what he would have done when he had been there himself. He wanted to maximize the potential for profit. That is what he wants the servants to do. So instead of divvying up the finances equally, he puts the more savvy servants in charge of a greater share. And I don't know about you, but if you're starting to think to yourself, well, how does this move forward or apply perhaps to us today? I usually stumble at this point because if the master represents Jesus, and we'll see that he does, then there's something kind of troubling about the idea that he entrusts more of his work to some people than to others. But then, if we delve a little deeper, if we scrape beneath the surface, what we see is that actually to be given one talent was not a small amount of money at all. Scholars differ when they try to figure out how it would represent in today's currency. But one talent, we may roughly say, could be the equivalent to around a million pounds. So one million pounds, two million pounds, five million pounds. I don't know about you, but that slightly freaks me out. Imagine if your boss, when you go into work tomorrow, said, I'm leaving you in charge of all I have when I'm away, while I'm gone. I won't have any ability to look after my own assets, so I'm relying on you. If I was entrusted with a million pounds, I think I might respond a little bit like the servant in this and bury it in the ground because I would be frightened of A, losing it, B, spending it on myself, and C, not making any back for him. But what we see in the parable that we have shared together this morning is that there are two responses. What we see is that the first two servants go out and invest their enormous sums, their equivalent to five million and two million respectively. And note, if you will, their attitude about the process. Verse 15 says that the one who received the five talents went out at once and traded with them. He doesn't hesitate, rather he acts. And it is implied that the second servant followed a similar course of action. And what we see as the story progresses is that their confidence and their action paid off. Because what we see is that both managed to multiply their investments 100%. And they must be pretty pleased with themselves. Because they have done with the assets exactly what the master would have done with them if he had been there himself. But we see the other response. We see how the third servant takes a different approach. We see how he leaves the master's office with his bag bulging with the money. And that while Jesus doesn't explain his motives, we see that when the master eventually returns home and calls his servants to settle the accounts, 
that he has left the money and hasn't made anything. We see how the master, when he arrives back on the scene, is keen and eager to see what has happened, what they have done with what had been entrusted to them. And we see how two of the servants report their progress, and the master couldn't be more pleased. How does he respond? Well done, my good and faithful servant, he says to them both. You have been faithful over a little, so I will set you over much. Faithful with little, and I will reward you with much. Faithful with little, and I will reward you with much. But things go very differently for the third servant. Because immediately the third servant attacks the character of the master. Because notice how he responds to not having made anything from his talents. He responds to the master by telling him, I knew you to be a hard man. The servant explains, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. But besides from being brash, his response reveals his true motives. He claims that he was afraid of the master and that's why he hid the money that he had received. But he uses these agricultural metaphors, reaping where you did not reap and sowing and gathering where you did not scatter seed to imply that it would be unfair of the master to expect to gain from the efforts of his servants. You have a habit, this servant is saying, of getting rich on the back of other people's work. Think about it for a moment. Who sowed the five talents that yielded ten talents? The first servant. And who received the profit? The master. And who scattered the two talents so they could be gathered as four talents? It was the second servant. And who received the reward? It was the master. But the third didn't invest at all, resulting in the master not reaping where he did not sow. So the servant presents this original single talent to his master and says, here, have what is yours. And we see in the parable how the master interprets the servant's behavior as an act of willful rebellion rather than fear. If you were afraid, he says, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received what was my own with interest. Listen closely. Because the master is reminding the servant whose money we're actually talking about. Because it was his money. It was the master's servant. So whether he invested it himself or allowed another servant to do so, the master implies that all of it is his. Servant would have been in no doubt that to leave the money with bankers would have been a safe investment. He wasn't ignorant 
or even afraid, but rather he was disobedient. The master, as we see in the story, doesn't take this lightly. He orders the guards to take away the talent from the worthless servant and give it to the servant who is ten. Then he casts out the worthless servant into outer darkness where we read there will be wailing or weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quite a daunting parable for us this morning to try and sink our teeth into. Quite a difficult story for us to begin to unpack and think a little bit about what it means for us today as we are gathered here as individuals and as a community. The master in the story surely represents Jesus. It won't be long now as Jesus tells this story before he is crucified. It won't be long before he is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. But before Jesus leaves, what he's doing is leaving his disciples with a charge. Because we read how in Scripture he says to them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he tells his disciples, as he says to us also today, then, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Unlike the master in the parable, Jesus promises his disciples and us today that he is with us always, even to the ends of the age. And even so, while he does leave them physically and begins a long journey to the right hand of the Father, he is still with them. So Jesus is like the master in the story in one sense because he leaves his servants in charge of everything on earth that was his possession. He leaves them in charge of his kingdom on earth. He leaves them in charge of his church with the responsibility of expanding that kingdom and church by making disciples of all nations, just as he does to us. To us, he says, do with these what I would have been doing with them. Sow the gospel, he says to us. Reach the nations, he says to us, and prepare for me a harvest, he says to us. And according to Jesus, our master, there are two ways that we might respond as individuals and as a community this morning. And they are similar to the two responses of the different kinds of servant in the parable. There are those who will invest and do, and and there are those who will bury. And this morning we want to ask ourselves the question, who are we going to be? How are we going to respond to what has been entrusted to us today? Are we going to go out and do the work, and try to make something? Or are we like the other servant going to just go out into the field and bury what has been given to us? Because actually, it's all right, because I'm all right. It makes no 
difference. This morning, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we going to carry Christ out of here into where we work? Are we going to carry Christ out of here into our homes? Are we going to carry Christ and his command out of here and get on doing it? Are we prepared to put in the hard work? Because we see as we come to the end of this parable that if we do, do the master's work and do responsibly with what he has entrusted to us that he will call us good and faithful servants. Or this morning, are we going to be like the third servant who instead of pursuing the interests of the master, decide rather to pursue our own interest? This morning, where do we fit Who are we in the story? What is the story staying into how we go about doing Jesus' work in the world? Is it from a genuine desire to be doing how the master would do it? Or rather, is it following our agenda? Is it communicating the gospel to those who are just like us? Is it sharing Jesus with those who, well, really, they're nice and respectable too, so we'd like to be sitting beside them on a Sunday? Or... Is it thinking through the hard and challenging call of Jesus to take that gospel to those who actually offend us, annoy us, upset us, disturb us? And through bringing that gospel to them, we realize together as individuals and as a community that what we're actually doing is doing the master's business. We are seeing that kingdom increased. The people that he came into the world to love and to save reached through us, through him, yielding the harvest that he's expecting when he returns. Or will we be like the third servant and just say, do you know what? I'm in. I'm saved. I'm sorted. It's all right for me. I don't need to do anything with what's been given to me. This morning, are we up for the challenge? Are we willing to serve? Are we ready to go? Are we seeking out the lost? Are we bringing in the harvest? Are we about doing the master's business or our own? Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we're reminded of the challenge of your word and how you speak to us in accents loud and clear but how equally you speak to us in still small voices. So as we go from here today, we pray that you would continue to speak to us, that we would hear you say to us where you would have us serve you, where you would have us take you, where we could be doing your business, so that when you return, the harvest will be ready. Will we be prepared to go? Father, give us the energy. Give us the enthusiasm. Stir up a heart within us that is similar to yours, that we may be able to do with what you've entrusted to us exactly what you would have us do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.